the whole snobbery about it is okay you just prefer the the chinese makers over the japanese makers or whatever there's no difference between soft would be and soft vinyl no one should be told that they're not allowed to make a thing because they've never made it there's some of the biggest toy makers we have here are first-time toy designers Hey, Toy Family! Welcome to the Marsham Toy Hour, where we discuss anything and everything designer toys. I'm Gary Ham. I'm Teresa Hawkins. I'm George Gaspar. And George, how's the beautiful Jess doing this week? Uh, she's under the weather the way I was last week. She caught everything I had. Oh, man. Oh, no. You actually sound worse than you did last week. <clears throat> yeah. Let me clear my throat. How's that? Is that any better? No. Uh, yeah, it's just a, it all became a big cough and, and a mess, but now I feel fine. It's just a cough now. Okay. Oh, man. Well, luckily, I don't think we're going to have to talk much today. We're just going to just throw out some questions and let our guests feel them, and we'll just kind of sit back and listen. Good. That sounds good to me. <laughs> we have an amazing guest joining us tonight, so let's just get to him. He is just a Western boy living in an Eastern world. He's one of the few Western guys out there in Japan producing vinyl. So let's welcome Science Patrol, or Corey. Welcome, Corey. Oh, thank you for having me. What do you want us to call you? Do you want to be called Corey or Science Patrol? You can call me Corey. Okay, let's go with that. So first off, I guess, why Science Patrol? So Science Patrol is the abbreviated term for the uh, non-Ultraman support group in the old Ultraman series. It's uh, S, was it Science Special Search Party or something like that? I can't remember the exact acronym, but uh, it was it's known in the West as Science Patrol. And when I first went into the toy thing, I was obsessed with Ultraman more than anything else and wanted to make kaiju figures like everyone else but okay. then i realized that i didn't want to make kaiju figures so the name kind of doesn't make sense anymore i think the acronym <laughs> is uh n-e-r-d oh, yeah. oh huh. <laughs> i wish we had a rim shot to put in there we're all nerds come on we collect I guess it's a toy podcast yeah we collect toys come on i'm not mm. saying i'm not saying anything out of school <laughs> now Okay, so you live in Japan currently, but you're not. You're a West. I mentioned you're a Westerner. So where are you from originally? I'm originally from Buffalo, New York. Actually, a little suburb of Buffalo called Tanawanda. And after that, when I got out of high school, I ended up moving to Boston when I joined the Army. And I was there for about 10 years, I think. Wow. Well, thank you for your service. That's, uh, that's honorable. And then in the intro, we mentioned that you're one of the few Western guys over there in Japan producing works. Did you go to Japan knowing that you were going to get into vinyl production? Did you go there solely for that reason? It's kind of a really weird story. Well, hit us. I came here, and this kind of sounds horrible, but the English teaching industry here, especially Eikaiwa, which are conversation schools, is notoriously bad. A lot of people, they kind of underpay, abuse, uh, work hour-wise. But because of that, because of there's such a demand of people wanting to move to Japan, they have a high turnover rate. It's also very easy to get a visa that way. So I actually came here with an English teaching visa with the intent of, over the, the first year I was here, finding a way to basically 
do something other than English teaching, like literally anything. And the toy thing was a pipe dream. Hmm. And it completely ended up out of nowhere becoming a reality when Velocitron was kind of transitioning from one studio to another. I had a project that I had sent to him to get made. And I asked him, I saw that he had recently relocated his studio, and I reached out, and I'm like, hey, I'm in Tokyo for a while. Do you need any help uh, setting stuff up in your studio? And he's like, actually, uh, I could really use an assistant if you'd like to learn everything. So he interviewed me really fast, and then I just started kind of learning everything there and then just branched out from there, and it came completely out of nowhere. Wow, cool. How long Lucky did you that. have to apprentice for him? I learned the basics of everything, like confident enough to kind of start doing the projects on my own in about five or six months. But I worked with him for three and a half or four years almost. And were you, was it a, like a paid gig or a, like an unpaid internship kind of deal? Uh, it was a, a paid internship. Originally, I was expecting unpaid, but he brought up uh, anytime that he ever worked with anyone, that having the money motivator kind of increases people to take it more seriously, which it wouldn't have made a difference for me. I was just psyched to be working in toys, but he was he was kind of adamant about that, which I was pretty psyched about. I didn't expect to get paid for it. That's so cool. So did you, before you moved to Japan, I mean, you were aware of the toy scene and toys and all that in general and collecting I, and whatnot? Uh, all throughout my adult life, I've been a massive toy collector. When I was in college, my first year, I really got into urban vinyl, Dunnies, and that type of stuff. Uh, my brother was a huge Frank Kozik fan, so we kept trying to like track down all of these old... We were both obsessed with it together. Track down a lot of his old 8-inch Dunnies, and then from there we discovered other artists, and then through Kozik stuff, we ended up discovering the or I ended up discovering the Kaiju for Adults series that came out a while ago, maybe yeah, mid-2000s. And he had a salaryman squid, and it's like, oh, why are these more expensive than Dunnies? Whoa, it's <laughs> Japanese vinyl, what's the big difference? And then I ended up getting into uh, the Skull Brain forums and then discovering all these independent makers. And then through all of that, discovered Real Head, which uh, became my favorite toy maker out of japan during that time and from there i was just trying to find more weird stuff coming out of japan <laughs> you're a young guy when did you go out to japan how old were you i was 27 or 28 i think oh wow i'm, I'm 32 i turned 33 on monday all but... right dude you don't look at it at all I've, I've watched the youtube videos of you in japan and working in the factories i thought you were like 24 or something like that <laughs> I just shaved my disgustingly large beard, so I look like I'm 17 again. But I was looking pretty rough during that summer. You know, a lot of people in our toy scene have these long beards, so much so that they sell, like, beard oil at the conventions and stuff, which is kind of funny. But So now that you're all baby-faced, and you mentioned that you're now, you know, you were working with Velocitron for several years, and you were doing the teaching thing on the side. Are you still doing the teaching, or are you subsidizing with toy work as well? Because I know you also rent, like, factory space at the factory, right? Uh, I, I actually don't rent it. There's kind of a strange agreement that I have with the factory owner. Okay. Uh, so I, I, I actually never was a teacher. I never taught a day in my life. I just got into the country with the visa because it was the easiest visa to get. And then oh. when I came, when I was in the country, I started a company, changed my visa to business owner. But it was infinitely easier actually having 
that's why I was saying it's kind of a, a bad story because like <laughs> I totally this company was horrible, but uh they uh were my easy ticket in to set up a bank account and a phone and all the things that you need to start a company here. Okay. Gotcha. But uh yeah, the the factory thing I kind of made so I I guess going back a bit more I ended up being introduced to the full-timer at the factory a couple of years ago at a uh, an event that we ended up doing together, an event called Wonder Festival. We hit it off because we're both nerds of a very specific genre of stuff, like cryptids, H.P. Lovecraft, and uh, kind of weird Japanese folklore and yokai specifically. Okay. But uh, we ended up doing a couple of events together, and then I asked him one day, because I was experiencing... Uh, huge delays in the order of my own product and it's like huh that's really weird i live here i could physically be at the factory in 40 minutes on the train uh why am i having to wait six months to get blanks right i reached out to him and i'm like hey man i don't want to cramp your style because he's of that little factory he's the only employee there's other factories but he's the only employee of that one factory so i asked him if he could kind of teach me everything about it and then after about a month of learning everything because there's every mold is different there's all these weird ins and outs of the specific material like the clear material is really sticky there's squishy vinyl that's kind of uh not super hard to get out but can warp when you pull it out just learning all those things over a month and then ended up kind of making a deal with the factory owner his boss that i would go in and pull all these uh, Western client back orders and start taking the orders directly from Western clients because a lot of people were using Google Translate or their agents just weren't sending in orders. And in exchange for that, he would let me pull my own stuff for free at the same time. Oh, okay. And that's that's your current situation then? Yeah, I I like it a lot because there's a lot of backlog, as you know, of stuff that just kind of vanished. And like all these pending orders so being able to kind of not ask someone to do it but to just go in there and physically do it myself and see that it's done is really really nice and the fact that i can kind of pull my own stuff at the same time is the the added bonus that's cool so you are the factory right now is different than the factory you did your internship through the internship i did was at a studio where we did wax work my main job here is I'm a wax prototyper. People send me prototypes. I make the wax master of it. I'll clean it up to a certain standard for software production. Like undercuts need to be eliminated. Certain angles need to be fixed. And then it gets brought to the factory for jointing. That was my initial gig. The, this factory is an actual, like, quote-unquote factory, as in a bunch of machines in a room. Gotcha. Okay, so you were doing the step before the poles. Yes. At the beginning. Okay. So you were doing like the prep and make the wax pieces that would be used to make the molds. <laughs> yep, yep. Whoa. Listen to <laughs> Teresa. So, Teresa, do you understand everything you just said though? Do you understand the process of it all? Well, so I'll do a quick recap and you can tell me if I've got the general process down because this will be good for those listening too. But my understanding is you make a sculpt out mm-hmm. of whatever and then you have to make a wax copy of it. And that wax copy is used to make a mold. And I don't know if it like melts into the mold or what, but it's used to make a mold. And that mold is what you pour the 
material in to slush cast it to make the toy. Yep. The mold is made through a process called lost wax casting, where you take the wax, a joint is added to it by, we have a joint maker who does for one part toys, it's like a, a pour spout for a finger puppet. And then for things that have a cap or two parts, they'll add an actual jointing system, like an arm or a leg or a waist or a neck. And then Uh those get put in an electroplating bath. They're plated in metal, and then the wax is melted out of it, and then thus lost wax because the wax is gone. And then they uh, just weld it onto a frame, and then you can just start pulling from there. That's crazy. So for the initial sculpt, is that like so? Let's just say theoretically, I wanted to make a toy. Mm-hmm. I could sculpt that myself out of Sculpey or Magic Sculpt or whatever the heck I want, and just send it to you all, and you can make a wax mold a copy out of any material, really. Yep, oh. literally anything can be used. Obviously, soft stuff would be kind of problematic. You'd have to like shellac it or kind of. Uh, get... I think George mentioned he used a piece of food once. <laughs> yep, he did. Yeah. Like a vegetable or something? Broccoli. Yeah, uh, okay. yes, I did. I looked up that figure. That turned out awesome, by the way. Oh, I still have some. I'll send you some. Oh, thank you. But uh, you can use stuff like that if you find a way to solidify it. Because the problem with the wax step is a silicon mold is made, and you're pouring liquid silicon on whatever it is. And if that silicon can permeate that sculpt, there's a really high chance that it's going to warp it or mush it into something that doesn't look like what you were expecting. But we've gotten stuff in wood. I've gotten stuff in clay and metal and uh, 3D printed material. And there's certain things, like the way that you use silicone, if it's sculpy, if it's metal, if it's resin, which is one of the best things to cast from, uh, you don't need to sur- like surface it, like spray it with a surfacer. Anything beyond that, you can make it usable by just coating it in surfacer. Huh. And you don't do any prep, like you assume the sculpt sent to you is ready to go. I have a back and forth with a lot of the clients over email discussing if there's deficiencies with something or if there's going to need to be a change. Uh, I had a client recently that had a figure that the arm was a really harsh right angle. It was like a perfect 90 degrees. And those, you run a risk of the joint at the actual inside of the elbow getting torn. So I was explaining to him, like, hey, I need this as two parts to kind of guarantee that this isn't going to come out soft or thin or torn in that area. And what we ended up doing is I just ended up cutting it in the wax. And it came out just fine. We can can do edits here as well. Uh, There was a recent project I took on where the hole to pull the arm out of was incredibly small. So I actually had to cut the wrist from the arm to make the figure pull correctly. And that was all done in the wax. So you can either do it in the sculpt or you can do it here. Uh, certain things absolutely need, need to be done in the sculpt. But there's a lot of stuff like just cutting parts that you can do in the wax pretty easily. Man, but your your whooper, Gary, was one piece, right? No, not at all. Actually, the fatty whooper would be considered one piece, but then it has the bottom cap. But the original whooper looper, that's several pieces. It had the, the, the body, legs, and tail was all one piece. Then the two arms are separate. Then the head was separate, and then four gills were separate, and those had to be glued on afterwards. The oh, gills are glued in? Yeah, so the, the head had six gills on it, and the two top gills were part of the headpiece, but the other four, because of the angles, had to be done separately. 
Oh, yeah, yeah, because they go down. You can't have stuff. Yeah, so he had to separate those from the head on those four. Mm-hmm. Now, Corey, when someone does send you, like, an original sculpt for you to work from and make a wax copy of it, does the original sculpt, is that still salvageable to send back to the to the owner of it, or is it kind of ruined in the process of? Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay, then does the factory just hold on to that stuff then? Oh, I always send them back. Okay. Because a lot of times uh, people make, different heads for the same body or different bodies for the same head so it you want to send it back to them as soon as you get the uh the actual finished poles and everything's fine from the factory i will throw out the silicon molds for the wax and then send the prototype back to the client but sometimes uh because a lot of these people making myself included we're not experts on sculpting i have no sculpting or artistic background whatsoever there's a couple of people i work with who are in the same boat but they got oh i'm inspired to make something so i'm going to try my darndest to get this thing into a working sculpt and send it off and when i get it it's like you can tell that they use like the foil if they use sculpty the foil on the inside that kind of isn't packed correctly or you can tell this thing's about to fall apart the second the sculpt is <laughs> taken out of the silicon mold and i'll tell them like hey we can definitely make this in wax still but i'm 99 percent sure that this thing is going to be dust when i pull it out yeah it's just kind of a salvage game at that point you can do like gluing at the end of it if something breaks off but it, it depends on the quality of sculpt if they're going to get the thing back in the exact condition that it was sent. And some of them actually break in the uh, the mail as well, which is kind of spooky. We had a couple of times mm. when projects would come in with a big old notice on the top of them oh, saying God. that it was opened by customs. Uh-huh. And, oh, man. <laughs> and I've got wax prototypes too, like some uh, uh, Castellan wax, I think it's called, like, or where it was blatantly like, this doesn't look, Correct. Just bludgeoned all up. Damn. I, yeah, I just think they open it up, look at it, and then just kind of roll it back up. The mileage varies with uh, who's actually doing the inspection, but uh, it had some pretty weird uh, results with the uh, customs oh, inspection. And then on your end, you're kind of expected to sort of fill in the gaps, I, I assume? Yeah, and it's pretty easy in the wax. You can just, like, uh, I got something the other day that the the client wrote me, and they're like, there's a hairline fracture on the leg that happened when they accidentally dropped the sculpt. Mm-hmm. And you can see it in the sculpt, but you can easily, it takes two seconds to just hit that with some wax when you have the wax proto and just smooth it out like nothing ever happened. Nice. You're kind of like a Mr. Miyagi, you know. But um, here's a question <laughs> I have for you. So. You were talking about after the wax stage, you then go to the metal molds and all the little different parts of the metal mold all get welded onto like one master metal mold. And we've seen photos of these things and they're pretty substantial in size. And for anyone who's listening, I know this is kind of hard to to picture in the spoken word. So we'll include photos of all this stuff in our Instagram account and whatnot. But the factories over in Japan, from what I've seen pictures of, they look about the size of a like a storage shed or a, a small garage, something like that. But you guys have made molds for hundreds and thousands of toys. So I've always kind of wondered, what's the storage or library system for all these thousands of molds? Is it organized to where if someone, you know, several years later wants to have another toy made, is it, is it organized enough to where you can just easily find a mold? Or over the several years, do these things just sort of get lost? 
So nothing's ever lost. It's just kind of in the worst place imaginable to get access to. Every factory is <laughs> different. Since working at the one that I'm at, which is uh, Mariyama Gangu, I ended up taking all of the Western clients, all their molds I have in the back, organized in boxes, specifically by which figure it is, or guys like uh, Rich from Mutant Vital Hardcore. He has a couple of uh, molds that are with us, and I have a whole box of, this is all of Rich's stuff. Uh, this is all of so-and-so stuff. And then uh, those are all in the back of this office that we have. And thankfully, we have an office because there's a couple of factories that... Uh, you ever see those old paintings of, like, wars where there's, like, piles of bodies? Yes, <laughs> yes. Like, re- imagine that with just metal molds, and the only way yeah. they can <laughs> access it is a stick with a hook on it. What? Like yeah. fishing for it. I saw yeah. a video recently with Javier Jimenez and you were there and you were doing the showing him the process of it. And in the background of that video is exactly what you're talking about. There's a big pile of metal molds. And I'm looking at that and going, how in the world does anybody know what's in that pile? That one is actually a small pile. And <laughs> because it's just me and the other, the other guy working there, we know where everything is in that pile. The left side is all Western clients. The right side is all uh, Japanese clients. And then there's two boxes in that area. Uh, you, you can't see the box under the pile, but one is all specifically one particular artist. And then the other one is all another specific Japanese artist. So it's organized chaos. Yeah, it's, it's really helpful if it's just <laughs> one or two guys in there where they know where everything is. Right. Some of these other ones, uh, but again, they probably have their own system because there was a mold that we were looking for that uh, the client, it was the uh, the artist's uh, Kappa Squat Toys. It was a semi, semi something, I can't remember the last part of the name, but uh, he was under the impression that mold was super lost because he had a friend here asking the factory for it. And it's like, oh... Uh, I guess it's just lost, or he, he assumed it was just lost. But then I uh, asked the factory owner, and he's like, oh, yeah, I know exactly where that is. And it's been years since this thing's been used. So they have, like, systems of, oh, I know where this particular thing is. I might not be able to know where this thing is, but this thing from a million years ago, I know exactly where it is. Yeah, I remember seeing that one on Instagram account. It was, like, the blood orange one. I remember going through the comments, and there were several people that couldn't believe that that toy has been resurrected. It was insane because that one, the client was kind of hyping it up that it was going to be like a massive pain to find. We got it in a day. Wow. Yeah, it was insane. There's other stuff that we've waited for for months. Uh, There's been one particular one that... Uh, it's a weird one. It's an old. It's actually one of my original molds <laughs> that I tried to get maybe a year and a half ago, and I still haven't gotten my hands on. Jeez, Gary, your your whooper mold is just chilling in some random piles. Yeah. All right, Sherlock. I'm going to give you a, a detective assignment. You need to find some whooper looper molds for us. I'm I'm thinking that the so I they're on the uh, the request list and they have been for a couple of months now, but uh, I was amazed the uh, because you semi recently had the uh, the chubby whoopers right yeah yeah I would have thought for sure that that thing would have been on the top of the pile because they only <laughs> pulled it a couple of months ago yeah but they're pulling stuff every day so stuff transitions 
I need to physically go to these other factories. Again, you're looking at a pile, and the, the uh, person that runs the factory just has a stick with a hook on it. But <laughs> you can kind of be like, oh, I think that might be it. I think that might be it. And they're just going one at a time. I want just that a- job. The guy that just sits on a chair with a fishing rod and fishes up molds all day. We once did it in the middle of the night, and he had to finagle moving molds with that stick and hook with a flashlight. Oh man! Wow. So, paint a picture for us. We've had on Robert. He's you know from Lulu Bell. He's come on and talked about his travels to Japan, and Dada Dub's come on. But paint a picture for people who maybe haven't listened to those episodes of what the factory life in Japan is like there's there's really not that many factories there's a lot it's mainly elderly at this point men and women mom and pop small shops but they're up there in age and from what we understand it's not something that's necessarily being passed down to a younger generation so does it excite you as someone like yourself being a younger guy learning this this trade yeah I was pretty excited uh, when I first asked the uh, full timer the full timer I think is thirty five or thirty six he's young. just a little bit older than I am. He was actually really excited because he brought up the fact that not a lot of people are getting into this industry because it's intense manual labor it's really hot and it's pretty dangerous with some things. The chemical that we use is 200 degrees Celsius. That uh, centrifuge thing is like standing next to just a helicopter spinning two hunks of metal in front of you. It's a it's a pretty spooky setup. Mm-hmm. But uh, there was a factory that opened earlier this year that was another young guy. There's a company called Tractor. That's a Japanese uh, production group that does resin and uh, keshi, like rubber figures. And they just opened a, a soft vinyl factory, and that's kind of a young crew of guys that's doing it, which is actually exciting because it's renewed interest in kind of younger people not only working at these places, but actually investing and starting their own factories. Yeah, for sure. So when you say when you say factories, I think a lot of people or our listeners, maybe novices, aren't aren't understanding when you they're probably thinking when we say factory, they're thinking of something that's. 10,000 square feet to 100 employees. They're probably thinking of something that we've seen out of China. Like what, yeah. what is a factory look like in Japan and how many are there? Uh, so I only know the ones in Tokyo specifically off the top of my head. I can think of one. I can think of eight or nine in Tokyo specifically. Okay. And each one that I've been to has been more or less the same setup. It's been a house like the actual house of the people who own the factory, and then over in front of it in a shed or a pseudo-garage-type structure, they have, and you see these uh, machines in every Japanese toy factory, you have uh, a vacuum. Well, actually, not all of them have vacuums, but I, I love the vacuum. You have the vacuum chamber, you have the centrifuge, and then you have the uh, the chemical bath, and then you have the water bath. Okay. And they're all various sizes. I've seen uh, uh, Shirahama Toy, uh, Dennis, uh, uh, is the other. He's the only Westerner I know that owns a factory here. And he has, like, a vacuum chamber that's so big you can crawl inside. And he's got really, really nice equipment. Uh, that Because, A, he takes care of it, but he also knew exactly what he was doing when he set it up. And it's like, yeah, I need a giant vacuum for this. I need a big chemical bath for this. Uh, there's another factory over in Sumida. I can't remember the name of it, 
they have a tiny vacuum and they have two very small baths of chemical and water and they do because they only pull a couple of toys Mm -hmm. so it's based on exactly what you're pulling we have a really big vacuum because we pull so much stuff uh and then there's a factory in the same town as us that they don't have a vacuum they just have a centrifuge and the guy gets bubbles out by doing i don't know what (laughs) just hitting (laughs) I I always thought that I still think that you really need a vacuum, not for the molds, but just for the material to get the bubbles out of it. Yeah, wow. They're yeah, all that's... universally tiny, though, which is the the standard for the factories here. It's all tiny, and everything's one at a time. Yeah, so I think, real quick, because I know from watching videos, you can get a good idea of the process, but for for the purpose of the podcast, so the vacuum chamber, you said you use it to get bubbles out of the material i use and it then... for the material and for the molds because i like pulling five four or five molds at the same time okay so can you like like a quick like elevator speech of these different things in the factory which do you like so you where do you start and how do you use each of them the two ways that you can get um something ready to be Hold, like preparation uh, is either the centrifuge or the vacuum. The vacuum just basically works as a vacuum, pushes the bubbles out of the pore spout. And you can, it doesn't matter what the weight of the mold is or how many are in there. You can fit as many as you can fit in there and the weight doesn't matter. And you, But it's slow. It's a slower process than using the centrifuge. Uh, the centrifuge is really picky. The centrifuge is quick, but both molds need to have a uh, almost even weight because it's it's uh, balanced. You have two hooks on this uh, centrifuge thing. You have a box in the middle and then two arms coming off of it. And those arms, you need to have a mold on each one to balance when it spins, or else it'll like go up and down and like my problem. washing machine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I put um, in too many seats. But there's a lot of variables with the centrifuge, and I only use it for certain things. If I'm just pulling, oh, I'm pulling two molds today, I'm pulling one mold today, I will use the centrifuge because it's way faster, but you need to find a mold that balances correctly. There's another thing called center spin, which is you put it in the dead center of the centrifuge, but we actually can't do that at the factory I'm at because the strap that we use disintegrated. Oh, no. Yeah. So... To put them in the vacuum or the centrifuge, you put material in the mold. Yep. Uh, both processes okay. involve material in the mold. This is after you put it in. This is just you getting the bubbles out and making sure that it casts the figure correctly. Okay. The mold's been built. You've poured material in it. You either vacuum or centrifuge it, and then that's when you put it in the baths. Yep. After you, those. You dunk it in the bath for uh, a couple of seconds, depending on how thick you want it, and then you empty out the excess. Once it stops dripping the excess out, you put it back in the bath, and then it just that's when it cures it and it solidifies. So the the amount of time you put it in the chemical bath determines the thickness of the toy? Yep. The first dip in the bath, when the material is, when the mold is 100% full of the material, determines how thick the actual figure is going to be. And there's a lot of variables for exactly how thick you're going to want it. Certain things, the jointing is really specific, so you need it at, uh, like, oh, it needs to be exactly this weight, or it needs to be between, like, 45 grams and 50 grams for the jointing to fit correctly. Uh, Another example is, you know the toy Negora? 
Yep. Yeah. You know the stomach joint on it? Yep. So for that to be pulled at the appropriate weight, that stomach joint is flat. Like it doesn't have like an overhang, but I've seen a lot that have overhangs because they're pulled a little bit too thick. That's kind of the risk of those figures. If you if you go a little too thick on them, then they have an, like this kind of gross-looking overhang. So that one's really specific for weight. And they, they test all this stuff at the factories. They'll go and they'll actually assemble one to see if it fits correctly, and then they'll mark that weight down and then repeat that weight again and again and again. Cool. So the weight is, de- like, there's a timing, right? So, like five seconds or eight seconds or whatever that equates to the weight yep on the first dip that'll be the thickness which is then the weight cool see i always thought the thickness was dependent upon your material like thicker material makes thicker toys (laughs) is uh, dependent on the material the material uh, is different hardness levels so the actual like firmness of the vinyl not the thickness oh okay that makes sense Gary, were you going to say something? Because I'm going to get nerdy. No. I'm going to keep going nerdy. No, this is this is all great. This is wonderful information. Just again, if it's not making sense to you, just watch the videos we provide. Yeah, it, it, the videos are really nice, and we can definitely link link over to it so people can kind of watch it. But it it makes sense to me. But maybe it's because I watched the videos. So I, I, I have a quick question. I don't know. Did we already ask this? Do you speak Japanese? Uh, funny story. I actually speak very little Japanese. <laughs> How do you I get wait- by? Uh, I get by with, uh, the Japanese I know is very specific to ordering and mold production and those type of things, but pretty easy to get by here. You just pick up enough to go through the day. Uh, and I'm learning slowly other things, but yeah, it was, it was a little rough in the beginning, but, uh, thank you. The, the factory owner is this, uh, this man, Mariyama-san, who's in his sixties and he's been making toys for, I think, 50 years. And he was the last person I ever expected to, A, want to deal with a Westerner who doesn't speak Japanese, and B, be willing to, like, converse in broken English. And we have, it's mostly Japanese, our conversations. Him and I uh, really quickly developed a visual system. He's like, oh, hey, this mold... Uh, we need this many in this color. I, I know obviously colors and numbers and the names of the things and the the names of the projects. So it's a lot of, it's not a lot of small talk. It's a lot of, oh, this thing needs to be done. This thing needs to be done. And it's really straightforward. But it works because it's, again, it's a super visual process. Okay. How long have you been there? Uh, five years. Oh, wow. Do you read it? Uh, I can read katakana and hiragana and some kanji, but kanji is incredibly variable. Like one kanji could mean several different things depending on if it's a, a Chinese rooted word or if it's a a specific take on another. Like a or it can be, it can just be read different ways. Like uh, or like pronouncing a word. Like the kanji for water is can be mizu. It can be sui. It could be. I'm sure there's another one. I don't. I don't know all of them, but uh, I'm an. I'm just an ignorant idiot because I thought Japanese written was just Japanese. I, I didn't know. realize there were so many different regions and interpretations. There's dialect too, which is really fr- not frustrating but confusing. We went to Aomori, which is up north, uh, last month, and they speak a different dialect, and it was really confusing because this. What I knew, I was trying to converse with people, and it's like, huh. 
They have no idea what I'm saying. <laughs> no, Gary, you're not alone. I'm literally sitting here like, wait a minute. What the hell did he just say? Like, <laughs> it's not Japanese. Cool. What? Oh. Yeah, I was like, wait, what? Yeah, I, I should be more cultured. But I did I want to ask a question real quick about mm-hmm. you had mentioned that the, a Westerner finally opened a factory. You know, I, I kind of equate to Westerners getting in and working with Sofubi as kind of like if you wanted to do stuff in sports and you have to just somehow know someone who knows someone to become a broadcaster or like have previously done the sport. Like it's very hard to get in and do things. Mm. Is Sofubi kind of the same way where it's kind of you know someone who's been doing it for for years and years and years, and they just have to be willing to teach someone new and just have to be lucky enough to do it? Or is it not the case? And like, it's easier to do than I think. You don't just go to school for this sort of stuff. I think what she's saying, right? Yeah. There's no school for it. You kind of have to learn from someone. The the Westerner that opened the factory is a dentist of Shirahama toys. And he, I, I can't remember who taught him, but he also had a lot of trial and error. He's mostly self-taught. Where it's like, oh, this was the complete wrong way of doing this. This was the right way of doing this. And just learning all this stuff himself. But he, he's he been here forever. And he worked at like a toy store and stuff. And he just, he's a really connected guy that put in years of just knowing people in the industry and stuff. And then one day uh, decided that he wanted to make his own factory. So I think for him, it was probably, he had a lot of resources. And he also had the determination and the uh the spirit to be like well i I don't care if i screw stuff up in the beginning i'm gonna learn how to do this it wasn't just thinking about money from nothing is amazing yeah i mean it's just like i I know the fubi and japan are kind of synonymous like that but like thinking through the way stuff's done i'm like could someone create a safubi factory here theoretically Good, but the material that we use isn't exported, and a lot of the material that you can get in the West, from what I understand, is the stuff that they use in Mexico and the stuff that they use in China, which... Gotcha. Uh, it, it depends. There's The stuff that we use is just liquid vinyl. It's uh, made by those... There's different companies that produce it, but the one that we use at the factory I'm at is called Plastisol, and it doesn't have a smell... It is just pre-mixed liquid vinyl. And the stuff I had, one of the most headache-inducing things I get is a lot of these people that open factories in China will send me just kind of rude messages on Instagram being like, hey, can you get me liquid vinyl? It's like, no. (laughs) (laughs) One guy actually took the time and explained why they want liquid vinyl so bad. And it's because a lot of the companies there use like a powder or yeah. some kind of like powdered vinyl that they have to mix oil with and then mix it together. Oh. And it it smells horrible. And a lot of times uncured parts will be sticky and gross. There's factories that can do really great stuff like uh, I can't remember the name of it. Uh, I, I'm, I'm going to remember it now. But uh, uh, Mike Scottum, this uh, American artist, released some cho- uh, toys through a Chinese company and the vinyl they used was fantastic. Like you couldn't tell the difference between Japanese vinyl and that. Okay. I was just curious. I mean, I, I never really, th- I knew there was the process of creating. I wasn't thinking about the material as well. And the fact that that might be unique to Japan. So that makes sense. And that's the hardest part is the material. 
how do you get material? Do you like order it? Oh uh, yeah, or... uh, so the uh, the factory I'm at has a contract with uh, the company that produces Plastisol, as well as all of the other companies that produce vinyl, and they just order it from the factory, or from, from the uh, the vinyl producers. Okay, so how and... about then when an artist needs to order up like a special order base color? Because I've I've heard that on hand you guys have black, white, and glow in the dark are good on hand. But if someone wants a very specific color for the listeners, we don't just say, "Oh, we want an orange, we want blue, or baby blue." We need to provide something what's called a, a PMS, which is a Pantone matching system. So we pr- provide a very specific color that we want the factory to match. So how is that Pantone color made? Are you given just a number of a series of primary colors and you have to mix that yourself, or is the factory almost Almost like a Home Depot to where they can take your paint chip and match it exactly to that Pantone. How does all that work? So I've never physically been in the the stock warehouse for uh, the Cobasol company, but I think it is kind of like the Home Depot. Okay. Because you give them the Pantone and then they mix the pigments and I was shocked as to how accurate they could get that liquid vinyl. Wow. And so how long does it take to receive a special order? It takes, it takes about a week or so to get certain, like, oh, I want this specific shade of purple. They can then mix, like, oh, this purple and balance it out with other pigments. Uh, so base vinyl is what everyone calls milky. The word for it is uh, nuhaku, which is, like, it's uh, no color. It's okay. just blank vinyl. That's your base. You mean, you mean, you mean raw vinyl? Like, yeah. no colors added? Mm-hmm. And by default, when you say milky, do you mean literally it looks like milk? It's like kind of a translucent-y white. Uh, a lot of people I knew were asking, it's like, oh, is white the base vinyl? And people just add color to it. And it's actually this milky vinyl that's the base vinyl. And then the pigments are added to that. Or glow is just, for the most part, milky vinyl with glow powder in it. Okay. So they take these colors, and they, it's, I think it's similar to the Home Depot, where you give them a Pantone. Uh, you can also bring in... I've had them do color matching on just other toys. Like, oh, this client wants this exact same color of this toy for this specific run. Like, oh, like Devilman. They want this color from this Devilman figure. Um, bring them the toy. or if, And it helps if it's you physically have it in hand, or like a photo of it is the second best option and they'll go and they'll match it based on that. Okay. So is, is vinyl when it's wet kind of like paint when it's wet, where when it dries or hardens, it, the color changes a bit. Yeah. Like sometimes, uh, the vinyl will look exactly like the material and other times like that orange that I had recently posted and pulled, it's like a really vibrant orange and the actual material itself kind of looks like candy corn orange. Okay. okay. So a little less, Highly. And so, also, uh, the big one's clear. <laughs> clear vinyl is actually white. When you pour it into the, the molds, it's actually like a, a white-looking material. And when it cures, it go- becomes crystal clear. Huh. Yeah, I have another question about colors and all that. Um, when a lot of these uh, crazy limited sofubis get done in, like, multicolor vinyl, where there's, like, a bunch of them poured in together and swirled and everything. Mm-hmm. You know, in the process of filling it, you have to fill the mold completely. So then these colors are just mixed and you have to pour them into what? Like one bucket that's just like a slot bucket of color? Yep. And then you get brown. So and does that like, does that brown, like, do you get, do you end up having to charge a client more because you then have this leftover brown sludge or 
do do they do like do people ever order the browns just to have ones to paint or what do you do with all that extra vinyl so uh, when people order marbled vinyl will almost always cost about twice the price of a normal pole because you're you're kind of polluting two materials at once and you're making it into an unusable color. It's not unusable. We use it for test pulls. We use it for things that are completely painted. But yeah, the client does pay more for the marble because of the, the tainting of the vinyl. I want to get some stuff in that brown. I like, I'd like to see what that looks like. It's pretty good. We've gotten some really fantastic vinyl mixes. And uh, if you mix like pearl and stuff, you can get pearl brown that actually looks really, we got like a perfect chocolate color from um, a marble result somehow. Yeah, that's pretty hey. cool. There's some cool experimenting you can do with all that. Mm. It's so, what I like when I'm screwing around with the molds is to figure out exactly what colors work together for, because we can't marble marble at our factory. We just do like this mixing process where you fill the mold completely with one color, you empty it out, and then you just have the trace amounts of that color on the outside, and then you pour in a new color, and then you put it in the vacuum, or you pour it in the centrifuge, and it mixes them like that. But it's more of a diffusion type of mixture as opposed to a straight-up marble. Uh, okay. The best example that we did for the marbling or the, the mixing vinyl was actually the uh, the Mutant Vinyl Hardcore uh, DX Sludge Demon figure. It has incredibly deep recesses for details, so it catches that vinyl. And then when you pour in the other color, it, it has ribs like a big skeleton front. So those ribs are all one color, and the inside of it's another color, and it looks really good. And for that method to work, you kind of need deep pits like that. Gotcha. And... Is vinyl, like, you know, you get paint out, and if you don't store it properly, like, it'll dry up. Like, how long does, do you need to use it up once you start using it, or can it last for a bit? Like, that brown pile, <laughs> can you just kind of hang on to it? It can last pretty long. One of the things it does when it sits there for a while is it'll start to separate. You get kind of a layer of, like, oil on the top of it. But all you have to do is just pick up that can and just shake it for a while, and it mixes it all together. And then you just put it in the vacuum. That'll get the bubbles out of it, and it, that also helps mix the material together. But uh, I've used some pretty old cans of vinyl, and unless water got into it or like a lot of moisture accumulated, uh, it works pretty decently. Now, are you ordering it by, like, the quart or the gallon? Like, I know artists generally want to do small runs. They'll do runs as small as 5 or 10, and, you know, most people try to keep them in runs of 30. So, like, mm. how much when someone places a special order, like, does that vinyl all get used up, or does it only use, like, a quarter of the actual order, and then you can then reuse it for other client work? The way that I've been doing it is any color that we order that – looks really cool like we just ordered uh one client requested gold pearl and they only wanted 20 of something mm -hmm. but i know a lot of people are going to want to use it because it's a really really cool color so what i'll do is i'll shoot off an email being like hey we're getting gold pearl anyone want anything in it and then i'll just tell the factory oh instead of ordering 10 kilo uh, five kilograms of this for this one order with a little bit left over, get 20 kilograms, and we can pull all this stuff at the same time. And that way, you knock out a bunch of orders, and then you kind of make it easier for the factory producing the vinyl. From what I understand, and this might not be entirely correct, but 
almost everything we get from the Cobasol company is 20 kilogram canisters. And I think they prefer just doing 20 kilogram orders. So I have no idea if that's a lot or not. So in your experience, the typical six inch figure, how many toys could you get out of that 20 kilograms then? Uh, I want to say, I think out of a single can, we can get about a hundred and oh, so of those. Okay. Yeah, you can get quite a bit. So it goes a long ways. Okay. Yeah. But it depends on the size of the toy and how thick the optimal thickness is. Okay. So larger things, you want them kind of thicker so they don't fold in and they don't bend super easily. And those take a lot of vinyl. Okay. God, we're an hour in. I feel I have so many more questions. <laughs> I really do. I, I, I want to get to know you as an artist and producer and all that. So just one more question about like materials and process and then, then we can get talking about you. Oh, okay. Okay. So we've been talking a lot about materials and there are people out there that are very particular about the terms for the materials. And I sometimes avoid conversations with people to avoid getting into this, mm, this, no, I'm sorry, it's this type of material sort of conversation. So you're in Japan. Can you explain the difference? Because there are people out there that will say Safubi and soft vinyl, they're not synonymous. They're, they're two different things. If it's a soft vinyl coming out of Japan, we're supposed to call that Safubi, and it's a soft vinyl out of any other country, then it's soft V or soft vinyl. Is this true from your, from your perspective? So if you ask pretty much any Japanese collector of soft vinyl, they will say Safubi is soft vinyl. It's the same thing. It's just the word. It's a shortened version of the word softuvino is soft uh, so, so because there's, there's no uh, character for v. So softuvino, softuvi, sometimes written as softvi, is the same exact thing as soft as soft vinyl. It's just the word for soft vinyl. They use it uh, in advertising here for uh, the new Ultraman uh, soft vinyl toys, which are 100% made in China. It's called the Ultra Monster Softubi series. Uh, the blog Softubi Road, which is put up by Medicom, refers to everything as Softubi. And every person I know who is Japanese, who I've asked about it, has said the same thing. Yeah, I don't understand why Westerners are so adamant about only calling it like Sofibi, as if there's a problem with soft vinyl or Sofibi. Like, oh, you, you can't imitate Sofibi. It's the same exact thing. <laughs> so what you're saying is like this sort of snobbery use of the two terms. It's just something that the Westerner, the Western collectors have made up. Uh, the word itself is like being misunderstood by the West and being picked up as this, oh, it's only, it's Japanese only. It's, it means Japanese produce only. And the way that they actually differentiate is, oh, there's Japanese made and there's Chinese made. And a lot of people, if it's soft vinyl, they don't care. Like soft vinyl is soft B, soft B is soft vinyl. And the only difference is, oh, this one's made in Japan, this one's made in China. And there's certain things you can do in China and there's certain things you can't do in China and there's certain things you can only do in Japan and there's certain things you can't do in Japan. So the whole snobbery about it is, okay, you just prefer the the Chinese makers over the Japanese makers or whatever. There's no difference between softubi and soft vinyl. Okay, so it's just a misuse of the term. Like a lot of people make it seem like it's about the material, but really it's about the region where it's made. So you just crack that urban myth. Because I know people that would say if it doesn't have the Japan foot stamp, then it's a less it's in, it's an inferior type of vinyl. The process that they make them with for the Ultra Monster toys 
uh, specifically, it's the same exact thing. Huh. We do the test poles in Japan, then we send them off to a factory in China where they can mass produce them. Wow. It's the same process. I know that there are people out there, Gary, who are yelling at us saying, <laughs> no. I can hear them too. I can hear them. It's, it's And it's one of those things where, I don't know, it's just I get where they're coming from and why they're so strong-minded about the use of the terms. But at the same time, I felt both soft vinyl toys out of Japan and China. And to me, there's not that much of, of a difference. I understand there's different variables of vinyl and there's going to be some differences, but I feel like some soft vinyl out of China can be just as good as, as the Japan stuff. And what's also sort of funny too is I know a lot of people think that if a company is in Japan, therefore their toys must be from Japan. But something like Medicom making the VAG toys, VAG toys are actually coming out of China, right? Those are made in China, but yeah. it's all yeah. softy. Okay. So the the vinyl artist Gotcha, I was just looking at them, Gary. They do not have the Japanese foot stamp. They are not they are not Japanese made. They are Chinese made. But that's what I mean. But China. almost everyone, ninety percent of the people, probably think that's coming out of Japan for some reason. Yeah, because I think a lot of people assume anything sold in Japan is made in Japan, which is totally incorrect. All of our action figures are made in China, and the so sometimes for paint jobs on things, I see people get really picky about, oh, uh, there's a toy here called a Nendroid. Are you, are you familiar with Good Smile Company? Yeah, definitely. Yep. So they actually, they have a Japanese production facility for paint somewhere up north for doing painting because I guess there were quality control issues with China. And Medicom recently had some quality control issues with China. But that's one f or two factories that are having these issues. The stuff like the stuff Unbox is putting out is the same quality as the stuff that you're getting in Japan. Yeah. And a lot of it, like the stuff I was talking before with uh, Mike Scadam's figure, Gums, Gums Production is the name of the company that uh, Mike Scadam used that had very similar quality to Japan. The one finger puppet that he had made, I, I, it's indistinguishable from Japanese vinyl. You would swear it was the same thing. And a lot of these places... Uh, there are other variants of liquid vinyl that people are using if they haven't gotten the ability to actually get the material that we use here. But it's all like you could – if you have the material and you have the machines, you could do the same production Japan does and some places in China do that. Okay. See, I wouldn't have believed it if it came from anybody else. So I'm glad that you're the guy who said it. Like this is what you're hearing in Japan. Like So it's just a – a Western-created thing, it's, I guess. It's a Western-created kind of snobbery, gatekeeping thing. And the, the one of the full-timer at the factory is actually kind of annoyed about it. He's like, I don't understand why there has to be this stupid, oh, that's not soft of me. It's like, yeah. what, why is it, it's soft vinyl. Why isn't <laughs> it soft of like, That's literally what they mean. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Japanese person. But soft of must come out of Japan. It's like, no, it's a word. And uh, Javier is actually one of the, the big guys on the forefront of, hey, there's no difference between this Sofabi is Sofabi, there's just Japan made and China made, and a lot of people, and he would know better than anyone else, because he's like a really popular toy maker working in both mediums, collectors don't care. Good. If the paint job's done, if the quality of the product's good, it doesn't matter. But uh, yeah, you can totally replicate the same things. It's just, the, the big benefit japan has is you can do way smaller numbers yeah okay good so this clears it up so the next time someone pushes up their glasses and tells me that mm, you're wrong on your terminology is i'm just gonna pass along this link to them to this episode 
Mm-hmm. Say tomato, tomato. Tomato, potato, tomato. Potato. Exactly. <laughs> yep. Okay, good. Finally. Now, now we can move on to getting to know Science Patrol. But before we get to you, we have to take a little break and mention several of our amazing sponsors. So for all your designer toy desires, we have two amazing stores for you. First off is 3D Retro. 3D Retro has a beautiful brick and mortar location in Southern California. So if you're in the area, be sure to check it out. But if you can't make it to the shop, visit them on the World Wide Web at 3DRetro.com. Also, Strange Cat Toys has been a very loyal sponsor for us. So give them a look at strangecattoys.com. And for being a listener of this show, you'll receive 10% off your entire order by using promo code MARSHAM at checkout. And for all you iPhone users, Strange Cat Toys now has an easy access app available for download in the App Store. Just search Strange Cat Toys. And then for all your latest and greatest in toy news, be sure to like and follow the two wonderful blogs, SpankyStokes.com and TheToyChronicle.com. The Toy Chronicle is also available via an app, so just search The Toy Chronicle on any one of your favorite app stores. Okay, let's get to know Corey. So, Teresa, you go first. Um, throughout this whole time we've been talking, you've been talking about things that have been pulled and whatever, and I don't know, I'm just looking around my room and I'm curious how much of stuff I've bought that you have actually pulled. What are some big names? Or a Byron or a lot of the Max toy stuff or any Western, almost any Western designer who's working in Japanese soft vinyl, I most likely will have pulled it if it was made in the past three years. A Byron? You're pulling all the Byrons? That's like thousands. we pulled them briefly because oh. they the, there's actually two different uh, versions of the original Byron. There's one that the heel is very pronounced, and there's one where the heel is built into the leg. And the reason was because it's pulled from the tail. It's a pain in the ass to pull. But there were <laughs> bubbles that would form in that heel. Oh. So we re-sculpted that part of it. And if you look at a new Byron compared to an original run Byron, you'll see the heel is very different. Super rare. Oh, man, and I don't have any of those. I i don't have any Byrons. I do have some Nagora, though. I'm trying to look at this to see if it's stamped. I'm picking up <laughs> toys around here. But what I think you did um, the Croconana for Sorbet Jungle, right? Yep. She's actually with us at Taipei this year. Wow. Oh, cool. fun. And, she's and then the, what, Cookie No Good was you as well? Mm-hmm. Well, let's just assume you did everything Western, but we're still talking about other people. So let's talk about Corey for a little bit. And Corey is also a designer of, of toys. And one of the most recent favorites that he's done that I really love is a little Kappa character. His name is Small Sun. And you, that, so that's your design. You sculpted it. You did every, 100% everything for this toy, yeah? Yep. Okay. I love that. Now, figure, was that – I was going to say, yes, it's super cute. Um, was that your first – toy of your own or have you been doing it for a while he's actually the 48th toy that i've made <laughs> what where have you been Teresa? not kidding oh, yeah sorry. I, make about, I make about 10 or so toys a year and i just do it because i wanted to learn like what works for sculpting what doesn't work for sculpting and i also had a curiosity of things that i wanted to make and i and you can see, like, the, the first things I made are horrible. And then after that, it got a little better and a little better. And I also wanted to learn jointing. So because it helps me when I'm doing people's uh, projects to know, like, exactly how the arm joints are going to work. And if uh, these particular leg joints will allow the thing to stand correctly. 
So I've been just experimenting and making things I wanted to make, but also kind of problem solving things that make me better at answering people's questions. So if you've been doing toys for this long, is is your store envy online store? That is 100% your work, everything you post there? Everything that's on there is mine, except for I recently posted. There's a couple of figures I've done for other people. Or like uh, with that Kappa Squats uh, toys figure. He was like, oh, hey, thank you so much for finding that mold. You can sell these ones. So I ended up putting those on my store. But everything else is uh, 100% mine. It'll say if it's another artist. So, okay, there's two things I saw that I like. There's like a little baby catfish. Namazu. It's <laughs> just the Japanese word for catfish. Um, are you going to make more of those? Because they're adorable. Oh, yeah. I actually have several hundred laying around. <laughs> uh, at events, we usually have like a small pile of them. And at Design Festa, which is an event that happens uh, twice a year here, we actually have a gachapon machine. We've been making little gachapon toys I think almost as long as I've been making toys, I think maybe four of those five years, uh, we had like a machine where we'd have uh, little mini figures that you could buy. And it's funny now that everyone's kind of making gachapon toys. I feel like I should focus more on making smaller stuff. But yeah, we well, have tons of those. Yeah, list them or bring them to decon or something because I want one. They're cute. Speaking of uh, designer con, Corey, how often do you get outside of Japan? Because it feels like in Asia, it really does seem like every other week there's a huge toy convention going on. Actually, just this weekend of record, we got Beijing Toy Show and the Senior Board Toy Games and Comic Convention coming up. So by the time the listeners hear it, those conventions are gone and over with. But do you go to a lot of conventions outside of Japan or do you primarily stay focused inside Japan? I stay in Japan for the most part because there's so much work to to get done here, and there's also so many shows that happen just here. Yeah. But uh, the one show I do travel for is Taipei Toy Festival. I do it with a group of friends who I've been doing a lot of stuff with, both uh, toy-wise and just like professionally bouncing ideas off each other. So that's my that's my big leaving the country show. But I send stuff out to art shows as well. Like uh, Wonder Goblin has a show in Georgia at the uh, end of the month. So there's some stuff there. And I'm sending stuff to Decon and all that. I try and have a presence at as many events as possible. But kind of becoming a bit overwhelming, with, especially with all the Asian shows where I had to send like oh, stuff for Singapore and stuff for Beijing and stuff before that was uh, Hong Kong. Yeah. And it's just, it's a lot of shows. (laughs) Oh, I bet. I bet. I mean, it's kind of funny because today everyone seems to want to work with a Japanese company to help produce their toys. But when I first started collecting, there was a very small handful of Western designers that were manufacturing their toys out of Japan. It was, you know, maybe Tim Biscup and Paul Kaichu and a few others. But today, it seems like every Westerner wants to find some sort of contact in Japan to help make toys. So... How are you dealing with the, the influx of designers wanting to have toys made in Japan? I I do kind of a balance thing where I have to I, I used to just accept almost every project if it was something that the person had clearly thought about and they really were dedicated to making it. But now it's become so overwhelming that you kind of have to I don't want to say vetting, but new people you have to kind of vet that they're serious about it. Yeah. Because there's been people who have bailed on paying invoices for toys or invoices for entire productions. 
And that's something I would... It's never happened to me personally. I've been given some cautionary tales. But uh, every week I get five or six guys writing that they want to make stuff. And a lot of times, you can tell when someone wants to make something and they have an idea and they know like they might be a collector and they know the shapes and the angles and the restrictions and they're open to knowing at the end, asking questions, figuring out how to do it. Those are the people I love working with. They're fantastic. But you have a lot of people, and not a lot, you have the, the small portion of that number where they have a very strict idea of specifically what they want to do. And they get kind of upset when you're like, yeah, that won't work in Japanese vinyl. This is how we, we pull things here. You might want to consider Rotocast. You might want to consider uh, Consulting China. And they get kind of angry, like, no, I only want to make it in Japanese vinyl, which yeah. I can understand. But Japanese vinyl production is, compared to what China can do, it's pretty restrictive with angles and shapes and stuff. You need to break stuff down into smaller parts if it has things that point in odd directions uh angles need to be adjusted it's a very specific manufacturing thing but it's it's the big trend so everyone wants to do it oh yeah no everyone wants to work there occasionally i get an email from someone asking for advice on how to have a toy made and they don't even ask about china anymore it always seems like it's about japan and for that because i don't really have much advice to give them because the guy that i used to work with he's kind of out of the business so Kind of funny that you mentioned about the the newcomers and the kind of the struggles of though because I know when I did the Whooper Looper, like in two thousand eight, two thousand nine ish, like that's kind of like when a lot of the Westerners started discovering that yeah we can have our toys made there too. And mm-hmm. I know for myself initially, and not from the mainstream collecting crowd at all. The mainstream were collecting really liked the Whooper Looper. It always sold out. It actually won uh, Best of Fubi Award in the DTAs. But as far as the hardcore Japanese toy collectors, and this is all based on reading comments over on the Skullbrain forums, and that's the forums where the hardcore collectors would have their discussions and such, I was hearing some like distaste and griping for newcomers like myself now being able to go to Japan and having toys made there because it seemed like we, we should like earn some sort of respect before we can have toys made there or pay our dues, I guess. That's how it used to be. Skullbrain has kind of a history of being incredibly toxic. Uh, not the actual like group that runs the forum. They're all they're all great, but uh, the actual community can be quite toxic. And there is a huge gatekeeping problem. Um, I want to say it was early two thousand. 14, I saw a lot of just really, it might have been 2015, just a lot of anger that a lot of people who have never made toys before were starting to make toys. And the consensus of a lot of these people who are the worst parts of the community were, oh, they should not make these new things and they should focus on people who actually make money. And it's like, no one should be told that they're not allowed to make a thing because they've never made it. There's some of the biggest toy makers we have here are first-time toy designers. Not Maybe maybe they've done resin or maybe they've done illustration. And then they had, like, uh, Teresa Chiba's Inu Harigan was the first independent toy that she did. She worked with Max Toy before, but still relatively new to toys. Yeah. According to the comments on the forums, it's like, oh, no, that person doesn't have the experience of casting. Resin was like the bear of entry. It's like casting resin. It's like, really? Like, that thing's that popular? And (laughs) these people would prefer a world where these people who are, she's an illustrator, didn't have the ability to make this that's what they want and it's it's kind of frustrating so i i tried my best to work with people who 
basically anyone that wants to make stuff who's serious about wanting to make it. I don't I don't want to gatekeep, and I don't want to be part of that weird kind of hype toy. Like it should just be new toys from these like storied toy makers kind of system. I'm I'm sick of that. There needs yeah. to be new makers, and then there also needs to be a chance for these people who might be the next MVH or whatever to make these toys. Absolutely. I fucking love that because it's true. We Everyone needs to be given a chance. Like, let's not keep them down. You never know who's going to be, like you said, you never know who's going to be the next MVH or Teresa Chiba or Candy Bolton or what have you. Like, we all started out needing help somewhere. So saying that, you being a producer in Japan, like, what advice would you give someone who's just starting out looking to have a toy made there? Oh, just send an email to myself, and I think Lulu Bell is still doing production as well. I think they're they're a bit overwhelmed as well, but it's it's a slow process, but stuff will get done. Uh, the most important thing, though, uh, is knowing exactly what you want to make and how you want to make it, and if you're going to sculpt it yourself. The way I learned basic systems for arms and legs and necks and just sizes was I just bought a couple of blank figures of different toys and just heated them up, took them apart, and just kind of studied them. Like, oh, this is how this works. This is how this works. Oh, this is why these are pointing downwards. This is why this is a separate part. And just having that understanding helps you. And that's strictly if you want to sculpt it yourself. There are people who will just get sculptors to to do the sculpt, and the sculptors have a really good sense, for the most part, of knowing exactly the medium. Oh, this is how this is going to work. That's awesome. And so, really, you are your open to emails yeah of course it's a bit slow because there is so much backlog to get through and also you're waiting on the the stuff coming in from the factory and then sometimes people want very very specific colors or they immediately want to the one thing we don't do is i don't handle any coordination for painting because the i don't understand exactly again i'm colorblind so i don't trust myself with (laughs) painting anything so, uh, painting anything for a client. So you just, far, you just farm that out though, right? So if someone wanted a painted piece, you can farm that out to a painter? Yeah, we, we have like the factory owner is always painting with his brother. They do okay. painting uh, and there's other ones, but I don't know what their timelines are and I have no experience of what their costs are. I could ask them, but I, I don't want to misquote someone and then have their prices be way higher than what they anticipated. I have a, I have a pretty good grasp of how much a toy is going to cost to be pulled or produced from uh, sculpt to vinyl, but painting prices is kind of, it's kind of a mystery to me still, because it seems to be all over the place. But you can help project manage it from the sculpt to the final pull, so you can help them get the, uh, the metal molds made, get the pulls made, get the masks made and all that sort of stuff, the whole yep. thing? Okay. And a lot of the times, it's me physically pulling the things as well. Yeah. Oh, so you make the masks that they I, use to paint? I don't make the masks. We actually, when you make a mask, you have to pull blanks of the toy. Uh, for here, you pull three blanks. Say you have a toy that you want the eyes to be masked. Mm-hmm. You pull three of the heads, and then you'd send that off to the factory. The factory would take that to, there's another factory that will electroplate that, similar to if you were making a, uh, a uh, mold of it. Because I, was, uh, I don't know if this has been mentioned before. You ever see how there's molds where it's several of the same toy on one mold? Yeah. yeah. A, lot of, a lot of times that's made, it's a mashigata is the word for it. And it's made just by, you have one mold that has one toy on it, you pull that toy six times, 
and then you plate those like they were wax because you can plate vinyl just like you can wax. And then they just heat it up and pull it out and then you have a six of the same thing without having to pay for six joints, without having to pay for six times the wax. Okay. And Teresa, it's it's very expensive to have the mask made. I can tell you that. Like, I paid almost $1,000 for the kappa, his hair, his little like leaf hair, his eyes, his beak, and his shell. And yeah. it was about $1,000. Yeah, it's not, it's not cheap. <laughs> no, definitely not. You got to make a lot of toys to recover your costs. Mm-hmm. It was the most soul-crushing part when I got the invoice for my masks, and it was more than my joints and my mold. Yes. <laughs> Like, huh, this is totally optional. I can, I can totally relate to that. It's no joke. I mean, people prepared. If you're going to have masks made for your toys, it's expensive. So, um, oh, let's move on. Let's talk about your, your little skeleton guys. I saw that recently. That's one of your probably newest toys that you've made. And that guy's pretty small, and it's like how many different parts on that? Like seven? Hey. Yeah, he's got seven parts. Seven uh, parts. Both legs move, the waist moves, the neck moves, and the arms move. And I'm thinking about actually making another set of arms for him uh, to, for a future release of it where the uh, hands or the uh, forearm and hand will also be separate pieces. I wanted to see how many jointed parts I can put on a tiny little toy. Yeah, how big is he? Is he like three inches? Uh, he's pretty small. He's, he's about, he's a little more than half the height of an iPhone 6S. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's, that's pretty small for that many parts. Very- specific form of measurement it's okay. a good size it feels good in hand but it looks it looks like the perfect size like teresa she loves that small size so it's perfect for her too i love small stuff because you can fit a bunch of small stuff on one mold yes that's nice too mm. oh george so you so george you've been to japan and you've seen the factories and all that other stuff from your knowledge and what you've seen do you have any like questions that maybe teresa and i aren't thinking of that would be interesting to the listeners i don't know it, it's I mean, I think you guys have been asking all the right things and it's, you know, it's bringing up all the visuals for me of walking through and, and seeing it all happen. So I think it's a pretty clear understanding. I mean, I think the whole thing about painting is really the part that it's one of the reasons, like for me, Japanese production is harder to use because it's, I, I like a very specific paint job on things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't ever seem to, no one ever really seems to go that route in the Japanese vinyl. It's always a very like wishy-washy kind of thing where it's like oh we'll just spray some stuff here and this stuff will be sprayed from this angle and maybe these will maybe the eyes are painted and it's like black or something like that you know it's not really like detailed things so that's the part of japanese production that i'm not a huge fan of is the paint the paint part okay um i I think everything you've asked has been has been pretty spot on for what i remember seeing and I, i love hearing it from another perspective and from a guy that's actually sitting there doing it Actually, one of the one of the machines I saw while I was there that I thought was really cool was the um, you keep talking about the joints and how uh, how everything's put together. The one part of the joint, there, there's the there's the hole and there, there's the peg and then there's the hole on the other side. The, yeah. the machine that I loved seeing and because the floor was littered with these little discs of many colors was the was the hole cutter to get the, the side with the hole cut out. That thing there, is incredibly spooky. I've, I, I've, I don't know what it's made of. I've never seen such a machine. I don't know if it was specifically made for that or invented for that or what it, what it originally was. But talk about that little machine for a minute. So I've only used it a couple of times and then got 
freaked out by it because when you push it in, it when it actually penetrates it, it pops. So you your hand is really close to that blade. And I just started hand cutting after that again. But that, that machine is just a, a motor that has like a pedal that to the front of it, they have a, this kind of pointed hunk of metal. It, it kind of like a, like an ice pick or something like that, that sits in uh, all joints have those dots in the middle of them. Yes. And it sits in that dot. And then attached to that is a blade that you can take like an Allen key and adjust how far uh, that actual, that part of the, the machine is out for the joint size. You, you size it up and then you can just push it onto that dot and the blade will just eat away and pop through the joint hole. And I think it was made just for that. It's it's such a cool thing. Gary, do you know the part of the toy we're talking about? Like, yeah. Okay, so it's and so when I went to the that one uh, factory where that was in the room, the floor because it's just sitting on the floor, so the floor around it was just full of vinyl discs of millions of colors, like they're just handfuls wow. of like discs of different sizes and shapes and colors and glitters and swirls and marbles and solids and it was like the greatest like i just want to take a toy and just fill it with all those little discs <laughs> like somebody should just be cleaning up those discs and putting them in other things because they're awesome i'm what amazed is- no one's ever done that before because those just get uh those get recycled i think you can't reuse them for vinyl but i'm amazed no one's ever just put like filled a, a toy with them george you just started the next trend it's been marbling yeah. it's been glitter now it's going to be this I don't know. If those things just get thrown out, you should start collecting them and save them and put them in something. That's actually the factory I'm at as well. Uh, yeah, yes. it's the They have it in that little back room there, right? Mm-hmm. You, I have a question about your background, actually. What yeah, uh, was it? Did you go to school for art or anything like that? Or what was your... I went to school for healthcare administration and archaeology. <laughs> Wow. I, when I was in the army, I worked uh, uh, the first couple years as a human resources administrator and then switched over to medical corps. So it kind of went hand in hand with that where I'm working um, medical administration. And then I wanted to work at a hospital when I was old. Not, well, not when I was older, when I was out of the army. So I decided to go to school for healthcare administration and then realized I worked at a Boston Children's Hospital for a year, which was fantastic. But it was when I was on the cusp of turning 30. It was like the 20s, 27 or 28. And I was like, huh, I really got to do this stupid pipe dream or at least try it before I turn 30 or else I'm just kind of going to settle into working a desk job for the rest of my life which would have been fine but i felt would have felt probably unfulfilled so i ended up leaving there after a year then going to chase this so yeah no background in art whatsoever when you when you were in the army were you ever stationed in japan or something like what made you choose japan as your your dream location oh i was just always obsessed with how interesting and weird japan is i went uh, back in like 2008 my friends and i were always into japanese animation video games i'm a huge fan of uh, tokusatsu which is like kamen rider and ultraman and those types of live action hero costume shows okay i, I love those so i used to just watch all sorts of series in the states and i was kind of in love with the way that they depict japan in those shows where it's just all grayed out and just kind of 
devoid of any individual personality of a city. It's just kind of a, it looks like a gigantic gray mass of buildings. And coming here, it's like, oh, yeah, it is. And it's awesome. <laughs> like, it looks really cool. <laughs> So, Corey, we got like, so, we got some listener questions then. Or, Teresa, do you have a question before we get to that? No, I was actually going to jump into those. Okay. Um, so, you know, we talked a little bit at the beginning that you are a collector yourself. And someone was curious, is there a brick-and-mortar presence in Japan? And what's it like collecting from them? I mean, are there are a lot of options, and do you visit them frequently and all of that? Or is there still a lot of online purchasing? So there are, the big thing here is events. There are so many events in Japan that for the most part, people will go and they'll buy at these events. And for brick and mortar, there's some stores, a lot of them are kind of like Shinto Gangu, which is uh, the real head store is only open one day a week. And good luck getting anything from there because you're waiting in lines for a while. Uh, Cosmonite Alpha is another uh, brick and mortar shop that does releases every so often Starcase, uh, it's actually a star wars uh fan showroom shop but the owner uh, creates these bootleg suffabi of star wars characters which are amazing and he does releases every so often i believe at his shop so there's like there's a couple of brick and mortar but the big chain here that's kind of the the head of the suffabi game is mandarake they have every mandarake Save for the one in Ikebukuro, which is straight uh, just books. It's just uh, independent uh, comics. Uh, the one in Shibuya, the one in Akihabara, and the one in Nakano. And that's just Tokyo. There's ones elsewhere. They all have gigantic Sophie sections. So a lot of people buy them there because you guys, they... toy that Toy Story is talking about, or that story is talking about. Is it, you your mind will melt <laughs> when you go into this store. Like, and they keep banding. Like, is it like decon level? Like that much no, stuff? No, it's and nothing one... you can. It's nothing you can ever imagine. It's like imagine picturing yourself walking into the store with the tightest aisles you'll ever see, where like one person with a backpack is pretty much can. That's all you can do. You can maybe squeeze by him if you like rub butt. <laughs> and it's glass shelves filled to the brim with. Every toy you've ever imagined piled on top of each other, like just piled on top of each other to the point where you can't, it would take you hours just to look through. You kind of have to scan the surface and maybe see if there's something you want to see. And you can't even see to the back of the shelf. There's so many things piled on top of it. And now picture that. And it's like eight floors of it. Sounds awesome. Like I want to go buy the store. It's amazing. And like one floor will be all books. And then one floor will be all toys. And then another floor, be, like, it's just insane. It almost sounds too crazy, though, George. Is it divided, at least divided into categories or subcategories? Or is it every toy imaginable just thrown together? Uh, the They're divided. So the Nakano one is several small shops. There's uh, an all Sotheby shop. There's an all Western toy shop. There's an all uh, Japanese hero show character merchandise okay, shop. Okay. There's an all okay. Disney shop. Uh, they, they separate it like that. The one that George is talking about is the one at Akihabara. It's a giant, like, eight-story building, and each floor is a, a thing, and they, they are separated. Like, the right side of this room is all uh, hero toys, and the far left side of it is independent Sophobie, and one, shell, or one row down from that is vintage Sophobie, and so on and so forth. So if you ever go to Japan, like this, you need to set a day trip just for this store alone. It seems like 
Oh, the Nakano Broadway one is like you could spend. I think I think Scott and I spent four to six hours just walking around. It's floor after floor, toy store after toy store. Jeez. So, so Corey, we got some more listener questions. Uh, what's the difference in popularity in Japan versus U.S. as far as like artists and toys? Do Japanese collectors primarily want Sofubi or Kaiju type product, or are they also heavily collecting in the Western toys, or is it or just a mixture of collector types? So the main demographic of people that I know as customers and see at these events and, and just interact with on the the majority are people who really, really like Japanese designers only because of the fact that they had their aesthetic, their availability. They can go to an event and they know this artist is going to be there selling things and they and they can collect it. For some of the Western makers, it's kind of hard for these guys to collect their stuff because they don't have a presence at these shows. Yeah. But uh, guys like uh, Paul Kaiju, there's a, lo- a lot of Japanese collectors get his stuff through either his lotteries or he's done design fest a couple of times. You, for Western makers, uh, it's guys like yeah Paul, uh, Rich from Mutant Vital Hardcore, uh, Splurt, that these guys who are like the kind of the the bigger industry guy on Skinner, uh, guys who are the bigger industry guys in the the West, are the ones that actually get their stuff over because they've done releases with uh, Mandarake. Skinner just recently uh, worked with Mandarake on a release of his uh, giant figure, okay. and Rich Rich did some ollies a couple of years ago. But then there's also weird niche ones like a. An artist in the West, uh, he's a tattoo artist, his name is Johan Ulrich, he goes by Death Cat Toys. He's really, really connected here with the Keshi, like the, the rubber toy designers and makers, as well as the Sotheby guys. So I know a lot of people that collect his uh, his, his uh, Keshi figures and collect his Sotheby specifically. And that was kind of strange because he's still, he doesn't have a lot of Sotheby produced. He does a lot of painting, but uh, he still has this niche of popularity here because a he works in a strange medium. There's enough Westerners making Keshi. Okay, he makes it exceptionally. Like his designs are really good. They're really nostalgic designs based on old Japanese toys. So he's kind of nailed this demographic. So it's kind of cool. He's he has the most unique niche of all the artists that I've encountered in the West. Okay. Interesting. You know, it's, it's, it makes me, and it sounds bad, but like as a collector in the U.S., I find it very hard to get stuff overseas sometimes. So it, in a way, I feel a little bit better knowing that they kind of have the opposite problem. But it also makes me wonder, like, I know that sounds bad, but I feel like there's like a critical opportunity here for like us to help each other out. Like, I need to find someone, like, Corey, if you, I need like a person over there who really wants Western and I'll get them stuff from like Decon and five points or whatever. And they can help me and we could just swap and do like, like we it's like totally doable. <laughs> a lot of people actually do that. They'll set up a uh, trade groups where it'll be like, Oh, I want these things at wonder festival. I want these things at Decon. Can you get these for me and then get these for me? And they just swap them. A lot of people just do that on like the friend to friend basis here. Trisha, oh, sounds Very. like you need to find more groups. Yeah, George. She's starting the she's starting the muling at Decon right here. Oh, I know. She, no. I know. I know. Hey, it's but muling with a purpose. 
Teresa, I'll meet up with you after the convention. It sounds like you're going to have your hands full. <laughs> Come on, Gary. I am you not following assist. you around as a mule anymore. Nope. I know. <laughs> I'm not going to be bad. But, you know, I, I'm in some groups, but they're usually just like, they're not necessarily that kind of connection, Corey. It's more the list stuff for sale or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to make this happen. Well, a lot <laughs> like, of those people have with trying to organize these uh these deals with people who they're not really, really close with, uh, especially like forums and stuff are a lot of people assume that people just want things, uh, because they want to immediately turn around and sell them. Yeah. It is a huge problem with, uh, flippers and yeah, stuff. Flippers. Well, I don't know. You can help give me some cred. Let's make sure they know that I'm legit. And then you can help me. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be up your hype person for your uh, your underground trade of uh, designer toys. <laughs> we do we do need a little help in the underground there though because we see all these like cool Asian conventions going on and Don will pop in or Data Double pop into our stomping ground and be like why aren't you guys talking about this Asian convention or that Asian convention and really it's because we don't know much about these conventions we see you know mentioned of them on social media and stuff but we've never been to one of these conventions so we don't know. What's the big convention? What's the small convention? And honestly, it's one of these things too where ignorance is bliss because Asian conventions are like the mecca of collectability. Like things are almost impossible to obtain. So you, you'd almost rather not know what you can't get. Yeah, it's kind of like a giant tease. It is. It is. And I see stuff. Oh my gosh! So like the events you were talking about, the Beijing Toy Show and the Singapore uh, Toy Game and Comic Convention coming up. I haven't seen a ton for the Singapore one, but BTS, holy heck, have I seen reveals. And I'm just like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And it's just painful because <laughs> you see all this stuff. And in a way, maybe it's good because it saves me maybe a little bit of money because I know I would splurge. But it's hard. It's so hard to see all this stuff and know you just, the majority of it's probably going to sell there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I want to say the you know the money that it takes to go see an Asia convention, but at the same time, I'm still not familiar enough to know which one I should be going to. Like, I still don't know the difference between what's the big conventions in Asia and which are the small ones. They're all... I mean, I have a kind of an idea, but I don't know exactly. Taipei yeah. feels like the biggest one, but every year it... it like, Taipei stays big, but uh, Thailand was a little bigger this year. Uh, Beijing keeps growing, but the problem with these shows is... Asia's the mecca for all this stuff. It's also the mecca for the collectors. So even if you see something that you want, and I can say firsthand from Taipei, uh, you you can't get it. Yeah. Like there's just lines. Some of the the makers actually only do pre-orders. Like you have to win a lottery to buy it before the like Instinct Toy did a pre-order only release at Taipei. They had some small stuff you could buy at the event. But unless you got one of these pre-orders for, like, a lottery, you couldn't buy any of their figures. See, and that's what makes it tough to make a decision on which toy convention to really save up for. And I think it's just one of those things. You just have to pick a destination that you want to go to. And I've never been to any of the Asian countries, so it'll be all new to me. But I'll just have to make the toy convention a side trip because it sounds like I wouldn't be able to get anything I'm hoping to get there anyways. That's why I, I have a really hard time recommending stuff like Taipei Toy Show or BTS for people who are coming to buy stuff. Because if it's a really, like, say you want uh, 
like I don't know if Byron's still popular anymore, but say you want yeah. a, a like the new Byron figure, you're not gonna get it. You're either gonna be there <laughs> waiting in line for four hours before the show with a group of other people who may have, and I, I don't want to generalize Asian shows in general because we, I mean, you see it in the West too, but there's a huge problem with people holding places in line and flippers and dealing with that and being a person who legitimately wants this thing and then you spend all this money to go there it's just i i, I can't recommend it yeah. like it's one thing to be a vendor and going there and being like i'm gonna try my luck or oh this thing isn't like i think uh, fluffy house had a lot of stuff i believe yeah i think it was that type of uh, fluffy house had a lot of stuff and a lot of it hung around for a bit not like it sold out eventually, but it wasn't like you needed to have queued up overnight to get it. Yeah. And I like their stuff, so I, I went over and it's like, oh, I could buy this thing, and that's fine. Like you're there anyway. But if you would have flown there and you find out like instincts predator only, I have to choose which one of these four toys I really want, which line I'm going to sit for the majority of the day, and a lot of the information they don't put out that well in English. Yeah, there was an there was an event recently. Like, in order to buy a certain object, you had to go to the event for the day, and then if you had like a receipt or some sort of proof that you were at the event, then what you really wanted was at a separate event the next day. Yep. Like, it's all sorts of these weird wow. avenues to buy things. And they do it to try and weed out flippers, and they do it to. Uh, I think Instinct did it mainly to make sure that they didn't get super overwhelmed by crowds at Taipei. Uh, but it's, it just, it screws the fans over. <laughs> yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. But guys, we're running long. Can I just tell a quick story about an epiphany that Teresa had today? Sure. I'd love to hear. <laughs> okay. I thought this was kind of funny. So, you know, we use actually on this episode and on previous episodes, we use the term East and West or Eastern vinyl versus Western vinyl a lot. <clears throat> So uh, today in the South Ground, I posted that, you know, we're having a Western guy living in an Eastern land join us tonight. And the light bulb went off for Teresa. Like, I guess all these years, she never knew what that what we meant by that. She like, just assumed it was like a, a type of style. Oh. <laughs> so, so from that, Teresa's light bulb finally went off and she finally gets that we were talking about Western and Eastern hemispheres. But for all the years, these years, Teresa, and all the episodes that you've heard us t- saying these terms, like what did you think we were saying or talking about? I don't know. I don't know what I was thinking, but the longest time, there's even been episodes I've been on where you said like Eastern or Western and I just like acted like I knew. <laughs> Yeah, like, the New York vinyl scene versus the California vinyl scene. No, I, I literally had no idea. And I think in my head, I was picturing it meant, I don't know why, but I was thinking like Western and Eastern was like a type of style or something. And then all of a sudden, when you posted that, I actually, and no joke, Googled a, a world map. <laughs> so I was like, wait a minute. Google the world map, looking at it. I was like, holy shit. It's because the U.S. is on the left side of the map and Asia's on the right. And it's west and east. And I was like, oh, my God. I'm sure you're not the only one. But it, I thought it was kind of funny that it finally it just clicked. All these years or all these episodes, you've been listening to us to say these terms and like you're afraid to raise your hand and ask the stupid question, I guess. Hey, every now and again, I'll ask, but, you know, I kind of try not to do it all the time. And, hey, I've done pretty good. No one probably knew that I didn't know. So... 
I'll willingly admit my epiphany. I was I was happy. I was like, oh, I actually get it now. I can. <laughs> and I love it. <laughs> Um, so unfortunately we're totally over on time, so we're gonna have to start wrapping it up. But Corey, thanks so much for coming on. You, you, you're a lot of fun. You too, man. Yeah. It's a bunch. Yeah. And we'll have to get you back on because I feel like I can talk to you for a few more hours, but why don't you, uh, for now, tell our listeners where they can find you. So you can find me on Twitter at science underscore patrols, and you can find me at Instagram at the same thing, uh, because science patrol was taken. So it's uh, science underscore patrols. And also, uh, I don't know if this is appropriate for it, but anyone having questions about this kind of stuff, email is honestly the best way to reach me. It's just sciencepatrols at gmail.com. That's on his Instagram if you don't want to remember it. Yep. Corey, just to be fair, you come across as so nice and personable, and I really think there's, I know a lot of people just don't understand how to get toys made over in, in Japan, but I think with you being on the episode and being, you know, open to producing toys for them, you're going to be getting a lot of people contacting you. Well, I hate, I hate to sound like a jerk, but I hate how many assholes are in this scene. Oh, like, no, it, there's it, a lot. <laughs> and there's a lot of dudes where it's all about, like, hype stuff, like where every toy's got to be $300 unpainted and they want to be the next nag, nag, nag maker and all that stuff. I, I can't stand that. <laughs> it's just, it, it's a, just a, something that shouldn't exist. Things yeah. should be priced as if, you know, it's, it's a design toy. It's not a golden statue. I agree. I totally agree. Well, thanks again for joining. Uh, Teresa, why don't you go next? Yeah. Thank you, Corey. This has been great. Um, thank you. If you want to find me, you can check me out on Instagram. My username is tmhawk24. George. You can find me on Instagram as well at double G Toys, And that's it for now. Okay. <laughs> uh, you can find me at GaryHam on Instagram or SuperHam.com. This has been the Marsham Toy Hour. We do this every other week, not because we have to. But because, because we, we want, want to. to. Yeah, George! I like so it. So until our next transmission, we're signing off. Bye.